Welcome to RUF. <laughs> At RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Uh, and that means that God's grace is going to be the fundamental thing of importance that you're going to hear about in RUF. Uh, and every semester in RUF, we do a sermon series. This semester, we're doing one in the Old Testament called Every Story Whispers His Name. We're looking at the story of the Old Testament and seeing how it shows us the heart of Jesus and offers us wisdom for the modern world. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and we can get started with Numbers 14. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for this opportunity to be here today. Um, yeah, it's, I don't want to take for granted uh, the ability to be here in person um, with so little restriction on what we can do. That has not been the experience I've had since being here. That's not been the experience that many of these students have had. So, Lord, we do praise you and thank you that we can gather together as we are tonight. Lord, I pray as we're turning to your word, uh, specifically as we're turning to a passage which uh, might seem a little bit difficult uh, for, for many of us, I pray that you would open our eyes. Uh, Lord, it's kind of hard to imagine how uh, a story like this could show us the heart of Jesus. Um, so, Lord, I do pray that you would send your spirit, you would send your spirit, and that you would show us Jesus um, and help us to become more and more like him um, through this word. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so there was an ad that I saw a couple years ago. Uh, it was a Gatorade ad. You might have seen it. Uh, it kind of opens up on Michael Jordan in a gym. And he's sitting there um, kind of looking sullen. And he says, you want to know the key to success? Fail to make the high school varsity team. Uh, little known fact, Michael Jordan, greatest basketball player of all time, failed to make his high school varsity basketball team. And then it goes on with like a montage. It lists a bunch of sports failures. J.J. Uh, Watt, who I would say until recently was probably the best defensive player in the NFL. Uh, apparently he was a walk-on in college. Peyton Manning, one of the best quarterbacks ever, uh, had a 3-13 and rookie season record. His brother Eli Manning led the league in interceptions. And then it kind of culminates with Matt Ryan, who was the quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons, talking about his tragic 2016 uh, Super Bowl loss, where they just lost in a very, very embarrassing fashion. And at the end of the commercial, it kind of uh, zooms in on Matt Ryan, and he's doing kind of this like workout montage and like pounding Gatorades. It's a Gatorade commercial, after all. Uh, and he, he kind of looks at the camera, and he says, you really want to know the key to victory. And then he says, defeat. And then the tagline, it says, Gatorade, make defeat your fuel. Okay, so this is kind of like a, a compelling ad in a lot of ways. Like it can get you hype when you're thinking about sports. It's kind of this idea that your failure doesn't have to be this thing that defines you. It can kind of be like a fuel for you. Um, but the problem with this is, did, did Matt Ryan really like fail in an unavoidable way, he was still an NFL quarterback after this happened. He's still a millionaire. Like, he failed after the Super Bowl and went home to his million-dollar house in his million-dollar car. Is that really a failure? What about, uh, what about serious failure? What about failure that has real and lasting consequences? What about moral failure? What about the sort of failure where you, it represents you failing in such a way that is a rejection of everything that you stand for? Failure where you're shown to be a hypocrite. Uh, what about a failure that ruins relationships? That ruins your future, ruins your career? 
The passage of scripture that we're looking at tonight is a story of serious failure. It's a story of identity-shattering failure. So we're looking in the book of Numbers, which is jumping forward just a little bit. So the last passage of scripture that we looked at together was Exodus 19. And so the people of Israel had just gotten to Mount Sinai, and the Lord had kind of shown them what purpose he had for them, that they were going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation if they would obey his covenant. And then he goes on to tell them what that looks like with the Ten Commandments. And so a little bit of time passes, and God promises to them that they are going to inherit this land, this promised land. Um, like we've sung in, on Jordan's Stormy Banks, it talks about being bound for promised land. The people of Israel were literally bound for a promised land. That was their whole story. God had promised to them that he was going to give them this land. And at the beginning of the book of Numbers, it starts by taking a census, which is why it's called Numbers in our English Bible. It starts by taking a census. And the reason for taking this census was God was wanting the people to take stock of who they have because they were going to have to take the land by military force. They were going to have to like count up all their numbers and decide what they were going to do. So the Lord has just told them that this promised land, this land that he was going to give them, that they're going to have to be the ones to take it. And so they respond by sending these spies into the land to see what it's looking like. So they send these 12 guys. Ten of them come back and they say the land looks amazing, but there's no way that we could take it. The people there are too strong. Two of them come back and they say, well, yeah, the land is amazing. There are people there who are really strong. But listen, we've gotten as far as we have by believing the Lord. We can do this. Like, we can take this land if he is with us. And the people, tragically, listen to the ten spies who gave the negative report. And this is what has happened right before the passage that we're looking at. So Israel, the nation, has gotten this far by believing God. They've gotten this far by believing God with what he says. They're children of Abraham. Abraham was the character in the Bible who he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is literally, this is their identity. They are the children of Abraham. They are believers. But then in our passage, we see that they refuse to enter the land. They fail to be who they're supposed to be. They become unbelieving believers. This is an identity-shattering failure. And I wonder if you know what this sort of failure feels like, what it feels like to fail in this way. Uh, if you're a Christian, uh, you should know what this feels like. Uh, to be a Christian, uh, it means to follow Jesus. It means to follow Jesus who is perfect in every way. It means to aspire to be like him. And it also means to, aspire to admit that we are a sinner, that we struggle, that we don't do the right thing. It means a daily acknowledging that we are a failure. Rather than following the word of God, we continually believe the lie. Did God really say? We believe that lie when we focus in on things like school, relationships, money, work, to give us things that only God can. We form idols of the good gifts of God, and we try to get from them what only God can give us. You see, this temptation that we see in our passage for the people of Israel, it's a temptation that's common to us as well. You see, we're tempted not to believe God. We are tempted to be unbelieving believers as well. So as we look at this passage tonight, I just want us to look at it through the lens of this question. What hope is there for failures? What hope is there for failures? But really the question is, 
what hope is there for us? What hope is there for us when this sort of identity-shattering failure and sin happens in our lives? So let's look at this passage here together, um, starting out in verse 11. So right before this passage, there's this huge failure. The people of Israel have uh, believed this bad report of the land. They've decided that they're not going to go to this promised land that God has given to them. Instead, what they're going to do is they're going to kill Moses and Aaron, their leaders. They're going to literally stone them, and then they're going to go back to Egypt. Like, this is a huge fail. Like, you had one job. Believe God, do what he says, and they're doing literally the exact opposite. So this is what happens immediately before verse 11 that we're looking at. In verse 11, we see how the Lord responds. What does he say? He says in verse 11, uh, the people of Israel have despised him. He calls it what it is. He says they despise him and they don't believe in him in spite of all the signs that he has done among them. You see, the first thing we see here is the Lord recognizes the failure. He calls it what it is. He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't deny it. He calls it failure. They've decided to reject Moses. They've decided to reject their leaders. But ultimately in doing this, they've decided to reject the Lord. So what happens? Well, their leader, Moses, who they've just said that they wanted to stone, Moses decides to intercede for them. Moses petitions the Lord. And we see this in verses 13 through 16. Moses appeals to the Lord kind of based on two things. Uh, First is on his reputation. He says to him, listen, all of the nations have seen what you have done with Israel. All of them have seen how, how your saving arm, the mighty works that you have done. And if you don't save them, if you destroy this people, it's going to look bad on you. And then next, he talks about God's character. He, he quotes Exodus 34. He says to the Lord, remember that you are slow to anger, that you are abounding in steadfast love. Be who you are. So Moses intercedes for the people of Israel. And how does God respond Shockingly, in verse 20, we see the Lord says, I have pardoned according to your word. The Lord pardons the people who have despised him. And all it took was Moses standing in the middle. The word pardon there, it's elsewhere translated as forgive, and it's usually used in the context of like an animal sacrifice. So after there's an animal sacrifice given, then someone would be forgiven. But in this context, there's no animal there. Uh, The the animal here, the thing that is sacrificed, really, it's Moses standing in the middle. He's the means by which they are forgiven. But what did Moses really do? What did he actually do? He comes to the Lord and he basically tells him, listen, this is how people are going to perceive you and this is who you are. Is that something that God didn't know already? Is that something that the God of the universe didn't know? Of course he knew. He knows who he is. He knows how people perceive him. What's going on here? I I think Moses doesn't give God any new information. I think what we see here is a God who is eager to forgive. It's almost as if God is looking for a reason to forgive. And Moses' intercession is the means by which God brings about this forgiveness. God is looking for a reason to forgive Uh, This reminds me of a story that Jesus told in the New Testament. I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have heard it, the story of the prodigal son. I'll just give you a quick rundown. We'll work through it. 
Um, the story is told there's a man with two, great, with two sons. It's a great man. He's very wealthy. And the younger son decides that he wants his inheritance. Uh, and so he asks his father for his inheritance. Uh, that would have been a shocking thing to do at the time. It would basically be that younger son telling the father, I wish you were dead. Please give me your money so I can go do what I want. And shockingly, the father says, okay. And he gives him the money. The son takes the money and he basically goes to Vegas and he spends it all on lavish living. And it doesn't end well for him, as you can imagine. He ends up in a pigsty. And as he's hit this rock bottom, he has this realization that the servants in his father's house live a better life than him. And he starts to think, you know, if I could just go back and ask my father to forgive me, then I think that I could live a better life. I'm not going to ask him to be, my, to be his son again, but I, I might ask him for a place in his house so I don't have to live like this. So he decides and he starts heading back home. And you can imagine as he's walking home, he's kind of rehearsing his speech. Like, you've got to get everything absolutely right. Got to make sure that the old man forgives me, welcomes me back in. And so he's going, and in the story, Jesus tells us, while he was still a far way off, this father runs towards him. He runs towards him and embraces him. He runs towards him and, and forgives him. And he, he not only just welcomes him back in, he restores to him his status as a son of a great man. You see, this heart that, of the father in this story that Jesus is talking about, this is what we see in our passage. We see this is who God is. God is so eager to forgive. Even in the face of people who despise him, he is looking for a reason to forgive. So what hope is there for failures? What hope is there for us? The hope is a God who forgives. A God who forgives. But why do we need a God who forgives failure? I don't know if, uh, like, in your experience of failure, whether it's your, you know, you cheated on a test or you uh, went to a party and did something that shocked you, like, in that experience, I don't know if the first thing in your mind that you're thinking you need is forgiveness. And I think that's actually why that is the thing that we need most. You see, in the face of our failure, we, we tend to have kind of two responses. Uh, the first is we deny it. If we do something that shocks us, uh, it's kind of a natural response to just deny it. I don't want to deal with that. I don't have to deal with that. Out of sight, out of mind. Or the other response really is to double down, to acknowledge that failure and to say, I'm never going to do that ever again. But see, the problem with both of those responses is that in both of those responses, you are controlled by what you do. You're controlled by your shame. You're controlled by what you have done. You're running from it on one hand or you're trying to dominate it on the other. Either way, you're controlled by your shame. You're controlled by your sin. You're controlled by your failure. And see, God the Father comes to us in forgiveness. He comes to us in forgiveness. And, and this enables us to be able to take a sober look at our failures. It enables us not to have to be so afraid. I think so often when we do something that shocks us, like the thing that we tend to stay away from is stepping back and asking, hey, why did I do that? Why did I do that in the first place? Why was this thing that was so clearly out of accord with my principles, with who I hold myself to be, why did that seem so appealing to me? And see, having a Father in Heaven who forgives us enables us to do that. Because we don't have to be freaked out by our failure. 
We don't have to deny it. We don't have to double down. We can see our, pla- our failures as a place of God's forgiveness, as a place where God wants to meet with us. So the Lord forgives failures, and this is good news. This is good news. But if you were paying attention as Abby was reading the passage, there's more to this than that. There's more to it. You might be thinking, okay, forgiveness is great, but what about the fallout? What about the consequences of the things that we do? And the second half of this passage does take a bit of a dark turn. Um, You might have noticed the repetition of dead bodies on the ground uh, when Abby was reading this, the kind of let the bodies hit the floor feeling going on here. Um, Yes, the Lord has forgiven the people, and there will be fallout. And that might be a hard thing for us to hold on to, the fact that there can be forgiveness and fallout at the same time. But this is kind of how things work in most relationships. Think about it this way. Uh, You're married five to ten years down the road. Um, From your perspective, the the marriage is going really well. You're very happy. Uh, But tragically, you find out that the person you're married to has been cheating on you again and again and again. Okay, and so the moment you find this out, you are completely free to forgive that person. You are completely free to forgive them. But that forgiveness does not take away the fact that it happened. (laughs) It does not take away the fact that there are still difficult things that need to be done. It doesn't take away the fact that there was a rift created by the failure that needs to be addressed. And that's what we see going on in this passage. There is a rift created by the failure of God's people that God is addressing. So how does he address it? If you would look with me to verse 21. So he begins here and says, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. Uh, Did you notice the repetition there of the language of seeing? The language of vision? Uh, The Lord here, he's saying something. He's, He's giving a principle. He's saying, To the degree that these people have seen my provision and not responded faithfully, to that degree they will not see the fulfillment of the promise. We see here that the Lord, he's demonstrating for his people that there should be a connection between what we see of God's faithfulness and our response. That if when we see God's faithfulness, we're not moved to respond in obedience, we're missing something. We're missing the point. You see, this punishment is tailor-made to teaching the Israelites that seeing God's faithfulness should lead to believing God. But it goes on. Uh, He talked about seeing, and now he talks about hearing. Uh, God says in verses 27 and 28, essentially he says, I heard what you said. Which, when God says that to you, um, in this context at least, that's kind of like a, uh uh-oh. This is not going to go well for them. God says, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they have grumbled against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. So what did they say that God heard? Uh, This happened immediately before the passage. The first thing they said, they they wish for death in the wilderness. They said, I wish that we were just dead. And what does God say to them? It says, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And he says, not one of you shall come into the land that I promised. 
And it's, it's kind of hard to fault the Lord on this. Like, it, of course, it's hard to see this happening with a God who is merciful, but it's also kind of hard because they literally asked for it. This is what they said. So God says, okay, I'm going to give you what you wanted. And what the Lord is doing here is he is letting them have their way. And he's teaching them the irrationality of their unbelief. He's teaching them that it makes no sense for you to doubt me. It makes no sense for you to have what it is that you asked for. And that's not it. Um, He says in verse 31, he says, Your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. So the reason that this generation has kind of decided that they wanted to go back to Egypt, they wanted to reject their leaders, uh, they didn't want to go to the promised land, their excuse was that uh, our children are going to become prey. Like the bad people are going to take our children. And what God is doing here, this is kind of like poetic justice. Uh, God is saying, the little ones that you were using as an excuse, they're the ones that I'm going to bring into the land but you're not going to be there. He's saying to them, essentially, the greatest danger to your children was not me bringing you into this land that you weren't ready for. The greatest danger to your children is your own unbelief. The greatest danger to your children, to your little ones, is you, not me. Ironically, it's the unbelief of the parents, not these inhabitants of the land which will ultimately cause the little ones to suffer. The Lord here again is teaching them in their failure. And then he goes on in verse three, verse 33, sorry, to kind of sum this up. It says, your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithfulness or faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness, according to the number of the days which you spied out the land. Okay, so what's happening here is the Lord is saying that the children of these people are going to have to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years because of what they did. And that's really difficult, especially in kind of an individualist Western mindset that we inhabit. Uh, We don't like the idea of the actions of other people affecting us. So it's really difficult. I just want to name that. But I just want to ask you, like, consider the alternative. So the alternative is, like, all of these people who didn't believe the Lord, God just kind of, like, smokes them on on the spot. Like they're done. What does that do to their children? That's an entire generation of Israelites who are raised as orphans. That doesn't sound too great. He could have ended this unbelieving generation on the spot. Instead, he allows them to come to a natural end. Throughout the, co- the course of these 40 years, they're all going to come to a natural end. He allows, him, he allows them to raise their children. And can you imagine what it would be like to be a child raised by this generation? Like, think with me for a second. You're you're told as a child that you're supposed to inherit this promised land, but you're not there. You're wandering around in the desert, being a shepherd. And so you're asking, like, mom and dad, why why are we not in the land? Why are we not in the promised land? And think of the opportunity that those parents have for those children. The opportunity for them to say, well, we're here because we chose not to believe the Lord. And to give them an opportunity to to show these children the irrationality of unbelief. To show them that they should believe the Lord. Uh, The word here translated faithlessness, uh, like old translations like the KJV would translate it harlotry. (laughs) But maybe a better modern translation would be infidelity. Infidelity. 
Because that's literally what happened here. The people of God who, who God had brought for himself had chosen to go their own way. And so this generation is raising these kids, telling them about their own infidelity. And giving them an opportunity to believe rather than to doubt. So what hope is there for failures? Now we've seen that there's a God who forgives us, but second, I think it's a God who teaches us. A God who teaches us in the fallout from our failure. But why do we need to see this, that God teaches us in the fallout of failure? Uh, I think if you're anything like me, um, if you've done something that uh, shocks you, or maybe if it's just kind of like a recurring trend in your life, um, a debilitating sin pattern that you just kind of keep coming back to, or something that you thought you were done with, and boom, there it is again. Uh, In those moments of failure, we need to see that God teaches us, because it feels like in those places, that's somewhere that God isn't. That God isn't there in the moments where we have literally despised him, in the moments where we have chosen not to believe him. You see, in, in those moments, our mind is thinking, well, the reason that I'm here is because I chose not to believe God. Why in the world would God want anything to do with me in these moments where I have chosen not to believe him? Why would he want to be with me in the consequences of my own sin? You see, we can't imagine a God who moves towards us in our rejection of him. But that's what we see. You see, we may believe that God loves us enough to punish us, but it's hard for us to see his grace in the midst of punishment. But what we see in this passage is a God who forgives and a God who disciplines. His punishment is not random. It's merciful. God, and in this punishment, God is allowing this, the people of Israel to feel the pain of the failure of their sin so that they can learn to be believing. What God is doing is he is freeing these people from the cancer of an unbelieving heart. And I think that's what he's inviting us here to as well. So we've seen that God forgives, and we've seen that he teaches us in the fallout. But ultimately, what hope is there for failures? What hope can there possibly be in our failure? I think the hope for failures is a God who is our father. It's a God who is our father. You see, in our failure, we don't need to simply do better. We don't need to just try harder. We don't need to deny it. We don't need to double down. We don't need to promise ourselves that we're never, ever going to do this again. What we need is a father who scoops us up, who forgives us, and who teaches us. That's what we need. And in our passage, we see the Lord treating his people as his children because of the mediation of Moses, because Moses stood in the fray. Though their sin was great, the Lord pardons according to the mediating act of Moses. But friends, we have a much greater mediator. We have Jesus. Paul says of Jesus in 1 Timothy 2, he says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Elsewhere, Paul will say that God made him, Jesus, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God, And because of what Jesus has done, we can know God as Father. We can be sure of God's fatherly care because Jesus was cast out so that we can be brought in. Because of Jesus, the fatherly care of God is given to us as a gift. And when we see the links 
that God was willing to go to have us, it softens our unbelieving hearts. Because of Jesus, our our failure and the fallout of it, it's not just going to be pointless. There there, there may be consequences, yes, but really what, what happens when we put our faith in Jesus, those failures in our lives become a death that is going to lead to resurrection. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that is given to us in Jesus. We can know that we have a God who is Father in our failure and in the fallout. Let's pray.